All right, so let's jump in. Uh, Exodus chapter 18, and let me set up what we're going to do uh, in this uh, uh, message series today. It's a one-week one message series. I want to talk a little bit about leadership tonight uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and let me just make sure I say this. I don't want to fully answer everything there is to say about leadership. That's not my aim. What I want to do is just start a conversation, maybe in your soul, maybe in where you are today. Just have a conversation, broach the topic of leadership. And uh, maybe let me just start it off by asking this question, okay? When have you, think in your own minds, when have you experienced poor leadership? Or maybe think, when have I experienced non-leadership? Just think about maybe a job or some type of sports team or dance team or something like that. When have you experienced poor leadership in your life? Um, I think back, I remember probably the first time I experienced bad leadership, uh, I was playing sports in high school, well, middle school, high school. And the coaching staff we had there were all really good people who I think were kind-hearted, but even at when I was born, or kind of in my era, I'm the kind of the, the very end of Gen X, the very beginning of the millennial culture. I'm born in 1981, and so I can straddle both things. Well, the coaching staff we had was designed for baby boomers, right? It was like all these very old, crusty, older country white men who just were like, "Come on, let's go, let's go!" They were they were all like they were like the they were like Rockies trainer in the film Rocky, right? I mean, it was just like always yelling at us all the time and didn't, didn't really kind of connect with how we operated. And so I just remember all of us were growing up and our coaches would always yell at us. At one point, like a coach would pick up a Gatorade bottle, very clear, or Gatorade uh, uh, kind of jug, and he'd throw it against the lockers and it clang, hoping to motivate us, and it never motivated us. We were just always like, why is he throwing things? Like, this is just so weird for us, right? And I just remember thinking as a middle schooler going through football and basketball and track going like, this, is, this just doesn't seem like it's great leadership. It, it just seems, I don't know anything because I'm a middle schooler, but it just seems like there's probably better ways to lead people out there. And I just thought this is really weird. Or maybe, maybe you've worked in different jobs um, and you have a boss and they're a boss, but they're not a leader, right? And you're just like, oh man, this leadership thing just doesn't, doesn't seem to work. Well, I want you to just keep that mental picture in mind here because I want us to talk about what leadership is. I want to talk about what the Bible says about leadership because what is true and what I think the Bible says most is that when leaders lead, everybody benefits, right? And that's the mark of good leadership. When leaders lead, everybody benefits. No one ever uh, suffers when leaders decide to lead, right? When people suffer is when leaders don't lead. Uh, people suffer when, when, when leaders maybe are not leaders, uh, but when leaders lead, everybody benefits. And so I want to talk about it. I think it's beneficial for us to have that kind of conversation. And uh, to do so, to just kind of frame the conversation, I want us to address three questions uh, right here. And I think they may be in your bulletin if you got handouts. And the three questions are going to go like this. Uh, number one, what is leadership? That's the first question I want to address. What is it? Just define it. Give us a benchmark. Number two, what does the Bible say? In particular, what does the Bible say about leadership? And number three, what do leaders look like? Or what are the qualifications of a leader? Like, what does the Bible say about this idea of leadership? And before we jump into answering those questions, I want to invite you to pray with me just as we try to remain teachable before Jesus. Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, uh, I thank you that you care about leadership, not because it matters in heaven, but because it matters here on earth, that it's something you've given to us in the church to help us focus on the things that matter, in particular, the Great Commission and the ministry to the saints and the ministry and the care for our neighbors. And so as we think about these things, Jesus, I pray that you would receive the glory and you would produce good in the people. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So to start off, three questions I want to answer. Uh, Number one, what is leadership? Okay, and I want to attempt to define leadership first by saying what I don't think leadership is. And none of this is on your handout or on the screen, but I'm just going to say it. First off, I want you to know that leadership is not knowing all the answers. Leadership is not knowing all the answers. Okay, now sometimes leaders know a lot of answers, but I don't want you to operate here today thinking that leadership is simply equal to knowing all the answers. Such that when you graduate from college or you finish up uh, thinking about whatever you're doing or you finish up at Disney and you know all this knowledge now, you're like, "Ah, I'm ready to be a leader. Leadership is not knowing all the answers. In fact, many leaders will tell you that they don't know all the answers. But part of their gifting is being able to come up with some of the answers and to figure it out and to research along the way. And I think we've all had friends or we've all had bosses who are very smart and they're terrible leaders, right? You can sit down and you're like, tell me about War and Peace. Like when you read War and Peace, like, oh, War and Peace, well, it begins, uh, you know, thinking through the Enlightenment, right? And they, they can pontificate about intellectual theory. And you're like, okay, cool. Well, you know, how do you get this team to operate efficiently? No clue, right? Very smart, but don't know how to lead. So I want you to understand leadership is not knowing all the answers. It's also not being first or being best at something. It's not being first or being best at something. And the great example of, of someone who's maybe the best at a particular issue or a particular uh, arena who's not a great leader, perhaps, is to look at any sports player who tries to become a coach and fails at it. Now, there are a few sports players, athletes out there who can coach, but the best, historically, the best athletes in any arena in sports typically are not very good coaches, okay? Um, A great example of this would be Magic Johnson, who uh, was one of the five, arguably five greatest basketball players of all times, if you're from the West Coast. He's an amazing businessman. He's just been incredible at business and built a lot of personal wealth, but he wasn't a great coach. Uh, And at different times, he's mentioned that part of the reason, part of the frustration he had in coaching and leading kind of the team is that when it comes to basketball, he just gets it, okay? He just understands it intuitively and he has a hard time transferring that intuitive understanding onto other players. Um, or another example might be Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, uh, has really struggled to be a player coach at times and, and struggled also to be a general manager and a president of a basketball operation. Oftentimes, the best players, the best athletes, the best people, the smartest people, the people who get there first, they have a hard time explaining and coaching and inspiring people towards excellence or to achieve their goals because they just intuitively get it. And so I hope you understand, just I want to dispel the myth, the best leaders in this world are not those people who just intuitively get it. They're oftentimes the people who really have to struggle to figure things out. And it's in that struggle where they have to figure things out. Maybe they're middle of the pack or they're just above average. It's that ability to be middle of the pack or just above average that actually helps them become really excellent leaders. So if you're someone who's here today and you're not the best at anything, but maybe you're average at everything, right, you're probably going to be a good leader, okay? If your GPA is hovering around a 2.6, 2.7, right, you actually might be a really good professor, 
right? Because you've struggled in college and you know what it's like. And so you know how to teach from the student's perspective, right? So, so it's not being the best at something. It's also this. It's not knowing all the answers. It's not being the first or best at something. It's not being a boss or being in charge. Simply being in charge does not make one a leader, right? Anyone who's ever had a terrible boss, right? Just saying, hey, someone's been given the title of boss doesn't necessarily make them a great leader. In fact, we've all had people who are bosses, and they're really bossy, and they're terrible leaders. We hate them. Well, we don't don't hate them because we're Christians, right? So we don't hate people, but we strongly dislike them with a passion, and we we invent ways to maybe, like, see their demise in our mind, right? Um, But yeah, just being a boss, just being given a title does not make one a good leader. Okay, so therefore, Doug, you belabored this. What then is a helpful benchmark definition for leadership? I'm glad you asked. Here's my benchmark definition, answer to question one. Leadership is the ability to influence others in the pursuit of accomplishing something. Leadership is the ability to influence others in the pursuit of accomplishing something. And I'm borrowing this definition from Jimmy Knott, who's our teaching pastor, who just wrote a book on leadership that I will post to our Facebook page. It's a really helpful book on leadership. And that's Jimmy's definition. It's basically, it has to do with this ability to be effective and to, to have influence and the kind of commingling of those things. And so I think it's just the ability to influence others in the pursuit of accomplishing something. And if this is the case, if leadership is the ability to influence uh, other people then I think I want to remind you of two leadership axioms that are crucial for understanding leadership here, things that we hold dear and think are true uh, in life. The first axiom is this. Leadership is a title that you give to someone who is already doing the work. Leadership is a title that you give to someone who is already doing the work. Uh, In our ministry, when we start recruiting leaders, and just so you guys know, we, we ask leaders to sign up and lead from August until May, and then in May, we hit the reset button, and we ask everybody else, it doesn't matter who's leading, we ask everybody to reapply and to start over again. So we basically, um, we have this built-in exit strategy. All leaders exit our ministry and are invited to reapply, and the reason for that is because we want to make sure that everyone is on board with our mission and on board with our ministry and understands the standards and expectations, what we can expect from them, what they can expect from us. And when we start recruiting and asking people to apply for leadership, here's what we look for. We look for the people who are already doing the work. And those are the people who we make leaders. So, Because leadership is the ability, to, it's, it's the ability to influence others towards a goal. We look for people who are already influencing, who are already making an impact, right? We're not looking for people who are waiting around like going, you know, hmm, I hope they make me a leader, right? And we're like, oh, you look cool. Maybe we'll apply the title of leader to you. And they're like, oh, finally. And then it's like, Superman, and now they take off, right? No, we want people who are already serving, who are already influencing people. We, we notice where you are in life groups. And if you're the one who speaks up, if you're the one who tries to in, in, inter, in, intersect the moment and inject yourself into the conversation, we look for people who come to master class. We look for people who step up to serve when we have new serving opportunities. We look for all that because leaders... We know this. Leaders are the people who are already leading. You can take anybody who's a leader, you can plop them into a new situation, and you know what they'll do? They'll lead. Because that's what leaders do. They just can't help it. They're just like, inside of them, they're like, I have to influence people towards accomplishing a goal. Where's the goal? I need to know this. All right, this is the goal. Come on, let's rally, right? It's like they have some kind of epic score on their cell phones, and at any point, they're like, gentlemen, 
dun, dun, it's time to move, right? The Braveheart soundtrack starts and they start giving an inspiring speech. This is what leaders do, right? So leadership is a title you give to someone already doing the work. Axiom number two about this. Leaders learn to throw catchable passes. I'm using a lot of sports metaphors. Apologies for people who don't like sports, okay? I was trying to pull something from like the area of the arts or something like that, but it was really difficult. Arts, the arts, by the way, tends to be very individualistic, and leadership is kind of a team thing, so sports tends to lead itself to leadership conversation. No offense, arts people, okay? Just be cool. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, if you don't watch sports, it's pretty easy to understand, right? I, 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 so I'll kind of tell this uh, story. Um, sometimes I'll go in the backyard with my kids, um, and uh, we'll play soccer. We love to play soccer. We have the goal out there, right? And I'm trying to teach my daughter and my son, how to one-touch into the goal, okay? Which basically means you pass the ball to them along the, the grass, and I want my daughter to have, see a pass incoming, and I want her to be able to just, with one tap, kick it into the goal, right? So we can set it up on like a fast break if we're in soccer, right? So I can take the ball to the end line and cross it. If you're soccer people, you get this, right? And so I just think that's technically pro proficient soccer. And so I'm trying to teach her this, right? So what I shouldn't do and what I don't do is like stand there with her by the goal and then just kick the ball as hard as I can at my four-year-old daughter, right? I'm like, hey, one touch it! One touch in the goal, right? Right, because my daughter would hit her in the face and she'd fall down and she'd cry and then my wife would come out and be like, what are you doing? You're a terrible jerk. And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. And furthermore, I don't do that at my one-year-old son, right? I don't just like boom a missile right at his face and like knock him over and be like, James, what are you doing, boy? Just come on, be a man, stand up, one touch in the goal header. You're supposed to header that thing, right? For a lot of reasons, CTE. We should, I should not do this with my son, right? So here's what I have to do. I have to know where my four-year-old and my one-year-old, I have to know what their strength is, and I've got I've to toss them or kick them catchable passes. I've got I've to direct the ball towards them in a way I know they can receive it and then make a play on it. The same is true in basketball. If I'm playing basketball with somebody and I don't just like throw the pass at them as fast as I can and they're like, oh, why didn't you catch that? You're supposed to, right? You've got to throw people catchable passes or in football, right? When the wide receiver is going down the line, you've got to throw the ball in a way that the wide receiver can catch and make a play on the ball. It's a concept in sports. The quarterback, the point guard, uh, the, the midfielder, they have to throw catchable passes. And the same is true in leadership when it comes to communication. Our job is not to just project leaders. Our job is not to just project information out and hope people just understand it. Our job is to communicate in a way that's catchable because that's how you influence. You think about the person receiving the action of your leadership and you think about communicating it in a way that they can catch it and receive it and make a play on it towards the objective that you have. If leadership is the ability to influence people towards accomplishing anything, any kind of goal, then your job as a leader is to make sure you're throwing catchable passes. You're communicating in a way that can be received. You're, you're leading in such a way that people understand it, they can process it, and they know and they can move forward. Which means leadership is, is really a challenging skill set. It's a challenging ability. Um, it's probably something you can improve upon if you have it, right? This is leadership. What is leadership? It's the ability to influence others in the pursuit of accomplishing something. Now, question two. What does the Bible say about this? Because so far, I haven't talked about the Bible. I've just kind of talked about leadership as if it comes from the world of pragmatics and, you know, 
business books and books you read on an airplane when, you know, you got to go across country and you're like, oh, what's the top seller? Let me grab that one, right? And to be fair, I'll just say, I think a lot of our leadership lingo comes from this world of pragmatics and business and sports and that kind of stuff. But the Bible has a lot to say about leadership. And so I want to show you how the Bible really starts to kind of indicate and highlight this leadership definition um, in its pages, in both the Old and the New Testament, so you know that I'm giving you a balanced picture. I'm not just cherry-picking a verse out of the Bible. So I asked you guys to open up to Exodus 13, and I want to uh, read beginning in verse 13. I'm sorry, Exodus 18, beginning in verse 13. Thank you for the correction there. Okay, Exodus 18. It's going to be on your screen. Uh, if, hopefully, it'll be on your phone screen or in your Bible, too. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And here's what it says. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So Moses is the main character here. He's got the people of Israel, and he's basically like there are just all these problems going on in the community, right? I mean, you just got these people. They're grumbling against one another. It's like my neighbor's playing music too loud, and what do I do, Moses? Or this person keeps running in my tent and being like, ah! and it's just as weird, or this person stole my manna. I don't know what's going on, right? There's all these problems going on in the people of God, and so Moses is like, oh, okay? So he's got this, like, stool, and he's sitting down, and he's like, okay, bring your problems to me one at a time. Here we go. So this is, you can imagine, this is like the Israeli version of the DMV, okay? The Department of Motor Vehicles. People are going to take a ticket. Okay, come on up, and what's your problem? Let's see if we can work through this. Moses is not happy about this, I should just mention. He's kind of frustrated. So, verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing, he's in the DMV line, right? Moses' father-in-law comes along and is like, the ticket system, really? Okay. Um, When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? And notice this, this question here. It's really important. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses, one person, is trying to handle all of the problems of the people of God by himself. One stool, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming to him, morning till night. He's just answering problem after problem after problem. Um, If any of you have ever known anybody who works in guest relations at Disney or at a hotel or whatever, imagine doing guest relations all day every day by yourself with no help with some of the crankiest people on the planet who just complain and are fickle about the, just the silliest things. Again, just, just keep this in mind. I want you guys to understand the level of pain Moses is in, the burden on him. These people walked through water. God split the water, and they walked through it, and they're like seeing like whales on either side, right, in this amazing moment, right? They're walking on dry land, They're walking across, they get across, they turn back around, God closes the waters, it falls down. They're like, this is a miracle, this is the greatest thing ever. They're like crying and having a party. Next chapter, they're grumbling against Moses. Oh, it'd be better if we were back in Egypt. And Moses is like, what in the world, man? Like, what do I got to do here, right? I mean, God just performed this miracle, these people are grumbling. These are some of the whiniest people on the planet. And Moses has now decided to sit there in a DMV guest relations type moment and go, one at a time, please come and tell me your problem. And he's doing this from morning till evening, every day, six days a week. He rests on Sunday because that's what Christians do. And then on Monday, starts all over again. And his father-in-law sees this and is like, young man, no, no. Verse 15, and Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, 
When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. So not only is he trying to help them, he's having to recite the Ten Commandments every time. Every time. He's trying to read through the book of Deuteronomy every time. The book of Numbers every time. How many of you have read through the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers, right? It's boring, okay? The only person who has ever loved reading through the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers is my dad, who's a lawyer. And he got, he was reading through it when he first became a Christian. And I was like, oh, you like the Pentateuch? He's like, oh, the Pentateuch is great. First five books of the Bible. I was like, which one's your favorite? He's like, Deuteronomy, all the laws. It's so, it's so wonderful, right? This beautiful legal code. And I was like, dad, you're a nerd. Only a nerdy lawyer would like reading through Deuteronomy. Moses is having to look over it every day from morning to evening. It's, look, I hope you guys get this. This is burdensome. This is lonely, this is miserable, and Moses was doing this every day, right? Making decisions. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. This is bad leadership. This is ineffective. It's not influencing people towards your goal. This is not good, Moses. You are not God. You are not meant to be this way. Verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, which is good. This is good news for all leaders, okay? Someone is stepping in going, this is bad leadership. This is how leaders burn themselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Verse 19, now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And such, place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. In other words, he's setting up the first life group leader system. Okay, this is what this is. It's small groups. It's the first small groups that have ever existed. Verse 22, and let them judge the people at all times, every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure and all this, uh, this people will also go to their uh, place in peace. Right, so... Again, let's think about the two questions we're trying to answer now. Uh, question number two is, what does the Bible say about leadership? And question number three says, what do leaders look like or what are the qualifications? And in the book of Exodus, we get answers to both of those from an Old Testament perspective. And here's uh, the two things we get. Here's how they, the Old Testament answers these two questions. Number one, Old Testament leadership is a practical matter. It's about sharing the ministry load and preventing burnout. It's incredibly practical, right? Moses' father-in-law didn't go like, listen, let me go pray about this for a while and just really see if a mystical, cool thing can come from God in this moment of fasting. He was like, listen, you're going to burn out, okay? So here's what you do. You have a 1,000 people. You put one person over 10 of them. You find these men of certain qualifications, put them over 10 of them, up to a thousand, and you will have these elders, this kind of leadership culture that's going to help you accomplish the task that's before you. They're going to be able to influence, decide between things, make hard decisions. They're going to be able to, to help you out so you don't burn out, and you guys will bear this burden together. 
Bearing the burden together is the practical definition of leadership in the Old Testament. Moses sets this up in Israel. Pretty soon they set up the tribe system and they set up a king system in every, every way, shape, and form. They try to set up breaking down the larger numbers into smaller numbers. This principle, by the way, is what guides our small group philosophy. There are, I don't know, a hundred of you in here. Uh, that's too much for me. A hundred of you is too much for me, right? I'm, I'm a human being. I'm not perfect. I can't handle a hundred of you. That's why we break everybody into life groups. Because we can give you guys life group leaders who can, for the most part, handle most of the things that come your way and in your life situation. We train our life group leaders. Uh, we make sure that they're as equipped as they can be. And we release them to go and do ministry, right? This, it's a very practical matter. And the reason we do that is because we're trying to share ministry load and prevent burnout from anybody. Old Testament answers the second question this way. Old Testament leadership looks for men and women, okay? Let's just imply women here. Men and women who are able, trustworthy, and have uncompromising integrity. They're able, they're trustworthy, and they have uncompromising integrity. The word able there, when, when he says look for able men, it's, it's the word men and women who have ability, who have the ability to lead. They're just capable. They're people already doing the job of, of leadership. They're already influencing people. And so what, what Jethro, his father-in-law, is saying to him is just go find able, capable people who are trustworthy, meaning that you can trust them with this. They're faithful. They, they follow God. They, they have integrity. These are people who understand the Bible and they live by it. And at no point are they ever going to be bribed out of what they're supposed to do. No one can ever come in and try to leverage things on them because they're people who do the same thing in public and in private. There's just consistency in their lives. And so in the Old Testament, we see this, right? Leadership's a very practical matter that's about burden sharing. And there are these qualifications that exist for leadership, okay? Now, I want you to notice this. We're going to go to the New Testament. And lest you think that the New Testament is somehow radically different from the Old Testament, I want you to know it's not. There's continuity between the two. I want you to, I want you to flip, if you have Bibles or phone apps, I want you to flip to Acts chapter 6. Because this is the New Testament church. Now, having to, uh, they run into the same problem that Moses is running into. And the solution to this problem is very similar to what happens in the Old Testament. So Acts chapter 6, we're going to start. We're just going to read the first four verses of Acts chapter 6. And here's what's happening. Verse 1. In the days when the disciples were increasing in number. Uh, remember this. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. He preaches the gospel. And 3,000 people become Christians. At about this time here when Peter preaches, there's maybe 120 to 200 Christians. They're meeting in homes across Jerusalem. And so it's just this house church movement of life groups that's going on. Right? So if there are 200 Christians, they probably have, I don't know, 10 houses they're meeting in, 20 people per life group, per house church that are meeting there. And Peter just gets this wild idea. He goes out and decides to preach the gospel in the public square, and now there's 3,000. So it went from 200 to 3,200 uh, 3, in one sermon, okay? Greatest sermon ever preached, right? And now they have a practical problem. Where are we going to fit all these people? The early church has a temple that they gather at on Sundays. Uh, I'm sorry, on Saturdays. But on Sundays, they don't have anything. So now they've got to go find like 300 homes, right? 
immediately. Hey, so you can see, like you just imagine it, they have their response time. It's like, okay, you know, the equivalent of Justin is going to get up now and he's going to sing a song and we're going to have our, you know, our prayer team down here and 3,000 people come in. So what's really funny, whenever uh, we're doing response time here, I have these signals with Justin. And so if there's a lot of customers, which is what we call it when people need prayer, like we love you. And so that's why we call you that, right? Well, I look at Justin, see Justin's doing it over there. And I'm like, like if there's just like six people, I'm like, Justin, like another verse or pick another song. And so sometimes you'll see, like, I'll just kind of turn nicely and just go, right, we're on the basis. Here we go, right? So you can imagine in Acts chapter 2, Peter is going, uh, another time. And so he's like, yeah, just as I am, another time. And he probably did this for hours because 3,000 people are coming forward. And so you can imagine as they're coming forward and he's doing this thing, he's like, would you like to become a Christian? And they're like, yes. Do you have a home we can meet in? That's question two, right? Because there's a lot of y'all, right? We, we got a problem here, right? This is what's going on. So eventually they get that kind of worked out. But you can imagine there's like 12 disciples or, or 12 apostles. There's like maybe 200 disciples who have maybe somewhere along the spectrum or at like some level of one on the maturity scale. And there's 3,000 brand new Christians and they're all having to learn how to have quiet times and how to get into small groups. And there's a housing situation. So this is what's going on. In those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, that's what it means to increase in number. There's just a lot of them. A complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews. Oh, man, snap. There's another issue going on. There's 3,200 Christians. Half of them are Greek-speaking. Half of them are Hebrew-speaking, Jewish people, okay? The Jewish Christians have these other culture, like this cultural thing. The other half have this kind of Greek culture, and there's like, there's like gang fights going on. I mean, polite gang fights, like Christian gang fights, but gang fights nonetheless, right? I mean, they're just like, you know, there's just some tension going on, right? And here's the tension. Because their widows, the Hellenists, the Greek widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what would happen in Israel is that um, the Jewish people would take all this bread. It's like day-old Panera bread. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like Panera will sometimes donate day-old Panera bread. So it's the Jewish equivalent of day-old Panera bread in, you know, first century. So they would take their Panera bread and they would distribute it, but they were only distributing it to the, the Hebrew widows. And so you can imagine, like, they come in, there's all these old ladies in, like, an old lady Sunday school class. And so, like, the young people come in, they're like, oh, yeah, someone's playing the piano, Myrtle's over there, like, with her thing. And they're like, hey, we have bread, but they say it in Hebrew. I don't know how to say it in Hebrew, but it's definitely not in Greek. It's like whatever the Hebrew word for bread is. And they're, like, passing it out, and they're looking at the Greeks like, no bread for you, right? And this is going on, and it's a problem, right? So, verse 2, the 12 were summoned, the full number of the disciples, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words... Listen, it's not right that we should stop teaching the Bible, discipling all these people so we can deal with this bread issue, okay? It seems like, like it may not be the best use of our talents to stop teaching people how to have quiet times so we can go mitigate in an issue between Greek and Jewish widows over day-old Panera bread. This just doesn't seem like it's wise. It seems like it's going to burn us out. So, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, they have high character. Full of the spirit, they are mature believers. And of wisdom, they know the Bible, they've lived life, they maybe have some gray hair, maybe a little gray beard going on. They've got a little wisdom in them. Whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, this is the New Testament picture of the beginning of leadership. I want you to notice something. 
I want you to notice that how they answer the two questions. Number one, New Testament leadership is a practical matter. It's about sharing ministry load and preventing burnout. Hey, that sounds a lot like the Old Testament picture. Guess what? It's exactly the same, right? New Testament picture says it's, it's, leadership is entirely driven by practicality, and it's about preventing burnout. It's about making sure the right people are doing the right thing. Secondly, how they answer the second question in terms of qualifications. New Testament leadership looks for men and women who are full of character, the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. Again, something very similar. So this is the biblical picture of leadership. It's an entirely practical matter about influence. And the people who get to influence in a practical way are people who are of high character, who are faithful, who have wisdom, and who are mature in their faith. Old Testament says it. New Testament says it. It's consistent across the board. So what does all of this mean for us today? If this is the vision of the New Testament and Old Testament picture of leadership, what does that mean for us? Here's what this means for us. Here's what it means for us. Um, I think it uh, drives us to 2 Timothy 2.2. And it's in your bulletin. You can pull it up on your phone. I want to even encourage you maybe to spend some time this week meditating on this and memorizing this. Because it drives home what we're looking for uh, in our leadership. And 2 Timothy 2.2 says this. It says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is writing to Timothy. And Timothy is a young pastor, and he says, here's what you look for in leaders. When you're picking out your leaders, here's what they need to do. You need to take what you've learned from me, you need to entrust it to faithful men and women who can teach others also, who can throw catchable passes. People who are influential, who are already doing the work, who can throw catchable passes to people. You trust them with the ministry burden of leadership. Those are the people that we're looking for. Many of you come to us from time to time and you say this, Doug, Alec, Britt, Kennedy, DB, Jay, Justin, what are you looking for in leaders around here, okay? And here's what I hope you understand from us. Here's what we're not looking for. We're not looking for smart people, okay, who know all the answers, right? And so some of you are like, I'm not smart, so yes, there's still a possibility for me, right? And there is. I want you to know that. I don't care what your GPA is. I hope you're passing. I hope you're responsible. But you don't have to be a brainiac to come be a leader for us, okay? If your GPA is somewhere in the twos or the ones, there's a zero point before it. I mean, we should talk about responsibility. I think you should maybe get into the ones there. But hey, you don't have to be smart, right? That's not what we're looking for. Um, if you're someone who's just the best at everything, or maybe you're not the person who's the best at everything. Maybe you're someone who you never got to be line leader when you were in elementary school, okay? They were always like, you're the caboose. Why don't you be at the end? Like, maybe just, maybe just make sure no one gets attacked as we go through the hallway. Just be the caboose, right? If that's you, guess what? We're not looking for the best or the first. That's not our game. Uh, if you got here first, there's no seniority in our ministry here. We don't believe, uh, we heard a ministry leader say this on our trip, we don't believe in rank, we believe in role. And so there's no tenure process. That's why we reset every May, okay? Because there's no tenure process. No one earns their way into eternal, perpetual leadership in college ministry. No, that's not what we're about. We're not also uh, looking for people who are bosses or who are bossy, right? So ever, maybe some of you have that roommate or that person you know who just always inserts themselves and bosses people around. They're like, you should really tuck in your shirt. You really shouldn't wear that. That makeup, really? That color of lipstick? No, not so much. You're wearing a baseball hat. You're wearing that hat. Really? Right. We're not looking for bossy people, okay? And so if you're not a bossy person, if you're maybe an introvert, maybe you're a little 
you kind of hang back a little bit. You don't say so much. You're, you're not someone who would be described as bossy. Guess what? There's hope for you in leadership. We're not looking for any of that. Here's what we're looking for. <clears throat> we're looking for faithful people. We're looking for people who have faith. And not just faith in Jesus. We're looking for this acronym. This is the thing we evaluate everybody on. Faith. And here's what it means. Number one, it means faithful. Okay? Well, Doug, you can't create an acronym and then define it based on the word that is used to describe the acronym. I know. It's terribly philosophically inconsistent. But uh, it, I think it gets at, this acronym gets at what Paul's talking about. Okay? We're looking for people who are faithful. People who are faithful to Jesus. People who are faithful to our mission to reach the 200,000, 18, 25-year-olds in Orlando. People who are faithful Okay, just described as faithful. They're with us. When we go on trips, they're with us. When it's master class on Sunday, they're with us. When anthem doors open, they're with us. When life group doors are open, they're with us. When there's just a hangout time, they're with us. These are people who just, they're on board with us to go be about seeing people who are lost, come to put faith in Jesus and grow in Christ. We're looking for faithful people, right? Faithful. Number two, or the second letter, A, available People who are available. There are people who say anything for First Orlando. What's First Orlando's mission? Anything for First Orlando. You need helpers in VBS? I'm in. You need people to serve at Surge? I'm in. You need people to serve at Camp Orlando? I'm in. You need people on the finance team? I can't do math, but I'm in if you need me, right? I might really help you out because I might fudge the numbers and we look good, right? So... Yeah, but hey, if you need me, I'm in, right? That's what we're looking for. Just people say, hey, I'm in. I'm available. Anything for First Orlando. When I hire people on staff and we talk about job descriptions, I give them their job descriptions. And like a Ron Swanson type moment, it's just a white sheet of paper. It has one sentence. It says, anything for First Orlando. That's the job description because that's my job description. And that's David Youth's job description. It's Danny DeArmas' uh, job description. Uh, that's all of our leaders' job descriptions. This is anything for First Orlando. We're not going to abuse that, but we want people who are available because it matters to us that First Orlando accomplishes the mission that God has given us. And the college ministry as a subset of First Orlando accomplishes that mission. Available. The next one, the I. There are people who are initiators or people who take initiative. That may be a good way to put it. People who take initiative. Right? There are people who take initiative. Meaning, you know this if this is you. This is how you know you might be a leader. Um, you're in any kind of situation, like let's say you're outside in Anthem. I'm just going to use this. You're outside in the kind of lobby in Anthem, and there's like a stack of red solo cups, and for some reason the Holy Spirit moves and it knocks the cups over, right? People are just like, they're like growing in sanctification as these solo cups hit the floor, right? I guess that's how that scenario works, right? It's definitely not a ghost, but it's the Holy Spirit moving, right? And they fall on the floor, and you can just, you just know those cups need to be picked up, Right? And no one moves, and you're the person who's like, I must pick up those cups. Like, you can't help it. You're like, no, that's someone else's job. And you start to take a step away from it, and you're like, I really have to pick this up right now, right? And so you pick them up, and you put them on there. That's not you being compulsive or ADD or OCD or any of that stuff. You know what that is? That's leadership. Seriously, you're taking initiative. You insert yourself into the moment. You say, hey, if, if something needs to be done, I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna wait around for people. Now, you may not be the first person to get there, but it crossed your mind at some point. You're like, someone needs to step up, and if no one steps up, I'm doing this. I have to do it. It's like a compulsive need to make sure that the right things happen, right? 
You know how we know initiators, we see them? They're the people who give us constant feedback, right? And not in like a complaining way where like the music was too loud or the music was too quiet or I didn't like that song. They're, they're people who are just like, hey, have you thought about this? And when you talk to them, you can tell they're constantly poking holes in everything because they want us to get better. And so they always are offering this feedback. And we, we just note as we listen to it, we're like, oh, yeah, we totally thought about that. And then we close the door, we're like, we totally didn't think about that. That person's smart, right? That's how we know that's an initiator, someone who takes initiative. They know we need to move in this area. There's a whole huge area we're, we're forgetting about, we're neglecting, right? We're looking for initiators, people who take initiative, who don't wait for us to give them permission to lead. They just lead, right? Because that's what leaders do. They lead. Okay, so take initiative. The T, teachable. People who are teachable. This is not people who learn a requisite amount of knowledge and then go, I've arrived. Okay, thank you. I know more than you. Okay, we're not looking for bossy people, right? We're not looking for arrogant people. We're looking for teachable people. We're looking for people who are lifelong learners. When we say, hey, we need something. We need this uh, to happen, whatever. We need you to learn. There are people who are like, uh, hey, we need a drummer. I'll learn drums. Oh, we need someone to play bass. I'll learn the bass guitar. I have no musical instinct, but I will teach myself this. Um, I will be like that one guy in that movie about the drummers, and I won't lead. Or I won't lag. I will learn how to play the drums, right? I will watch Drumline. I will learn this. I'm on board. I am enrolling in a college to join a pep band to learn the drum because I will do whatever it takes. There are people who learn computers. They learn Facebook. They learn everything. There are people who just learn what we need to learn, and they love to learn, and they love to challenge themselves and teach themselves new things. These are the people we're looking for. There are people, when we give them feedback, they go, I will immediately apply that in my life. Why? Because they're teachable. They want to learn new things. And finally, people who are humble. People who are humble. Uh, and now let me tell you why we had to put humble in there. It, it goes without saying, if you're faithful, you, you know, you may be humble, but I don't think that's true. The, the paradigm we were operating on last year, uh, Clarence and Alec and uh, JP uh, went to this conference in Indianapolis and they brought this back. They said, the, the thing that we should look for is fat people, F-A-T, faithful, available, and teachable, right? And so that was the acronym we were going on. So you can imagine like we're recruiting a bunch of girls. We're like, man, we really love you guys in leadership because we look for fat people and y'all are my women, right? We love fat women, right? And the girls are just like, like, you know, yeah. So that, that was problematic to begin with. But, but, but here's, here's the thing. Um, we, we like the idea of having initiative because it's not enough to just be faithful, available, and teachable. We like the idea of initiative. Here's the problem with people who take initiative. They're often very arrogant, Right? So you have to add on the H of humility to balance out all the initiative people, right? Because they're like, I'll pick up the solo cups. I picked up the solo cups. I'm the man. I'm, I'm Instagramming about it right now. Look who picked up the solo cups after the Holy Spirit moved. I did. Ha, ha, ha. I'm the best. Right? That's how those people, op- or at least that's how I operate. For whatever reason, at the end of any of my rants, I always shoot invisible pistols into the air. Because um, I guess that's what I do. Right? So you have to have humility there as a safeguard against the initiative. So we want fat people, but we want fat people who have initiative and who have humility. So really what we're looking for is people with faith. This is what the Bible, I think, the Bible talks about in leadership. And this is what we're looking for in leadership. And so at, to, to close here, to kind of cap all this off right before I ask the band to, to lead us in a song of response. Here's what I want to say to you guys. Um, it's May, or it's about to be May, so we're going to start the process of looking for new leaders. And in fact, 
tonight, if maybe God has stirred in your soul, as you've heard this vision for leadership, if you've thought about this, and you've like, oh, man, I think I, I want to be a leader. I want you to know this. We, we, have, um, we have leadership applications that are here tonight, okay? And here's my challenge to you. If you think God wants you to be a leader in our ministry, I want to encourage you to sign up to be a leader starting today. Now, we'll have this open uh, throughout the summer because we'll use summer to recruit new leaders. Um, but our applications are going to be right out here. Um, you can pick one up today, and you can fill it out, and you can turn it in. You can coordinate with me or coordinate with anybody on our staff on how to turn that in. You can turn it in to any staff member. But I want to challenge you. If you're someone who's faithful, and you're someone who's available, and you're someone who uh, takes initiative, and you're someone who's teachable, and you're someone who has humility um, in, in, in all the right ways, I want to challenge you to think about and pray about signing up to be a leader with us for the next year. The, the, one of the misnomers that the, the megachurches often have, and I don't think this is true of our megachurch, uh, but oftentimes it's, if I can have a great preacher who's on stage or a great worship leader right at the top, then we can reach all of these people down here. And it's kind of this triangle model, right? And this is the era that Moses was in, which was me and hundreds of thousands of people right here. And the megachurch in America, unfortunately, tends to operate this way. Uh, and there's just this shrinking middle layer of leaders that they have. And what happens ultimately is that that leader burns out or isn't able to sustain reaching the people. Or there's a giant back door in their ministry and people are constantly leaving. Because they don't feel loved. They don't feel taken care of. There's no personal touch. So we think, we think around here that what we need to focus on is not the person at the top and not all the people at the bottom. We need to focus the vast majority of our attention on that middle layer. It almost looks like a diamond, right? That there's the person at the top for sure, but the, we, we place far more attention on this middle layer of our leaders, these faithful people who are, who are capable, capable and able to lead. And if we'll focus on them, they'll be able to take care of everybody just below them, and we'll be able to serve people better. And man, we'll be able to bring people in to Christ and disciple them left and right. And we'll be able to send out new church plants and start new things and start multi-sites and plant in other cities and plant in other countries. And it'll just be this constant factory of disciple making that happens over and over and over again. And I just think it would just be super great if in college ministry we raised up leaders over this next year and really focused our attention on them. And within a few years' times, we just reached every college student in Orlando. Like seriously, like all 200,000, they had no choice. All the atheists are like, I'm giving up. I'm just coming to first Orlando. I know there's no hope for me. The gospel's coming to me eventually and I'm gonna believe in it because it's compelling. So please, what do I have to do to follow Jesus, right? And all 200,000 college students get saved and get discipled. And then we're like, oh man, um, I guess we have to go to Tampa now. Like there are colleges there. Maybe there's like 300,000 college students in Tampa. We'll just go save them. And then we save everybody in Tampa. We see Jesus save everybody in Tampa. And we're like, ooh, I guess we gotta go to Tallahassee now, right? Because, uh, you know, there are probably some non-Christians in Tallahassee. No offense, FSU play, uh, fans. But, you know, we got to go to Tallahassee. And we, we, then over time, because we develop all these leaders, we save everybody in Tallahassee. And we're like, okay, Miami. That's the big one, right? Ooh, bienvenido a Miami. We've got to go and just reach everybody in Miami. And then pretty soon there are, like, no more non-Christian college students in Florida. And we're like, man, where's next? And we just have to go across the U.S. So maybe that's what God wants to do starting here. And the way God's going to get that, get us there, is to start with you thinking about applying to be a leader in our ministry. Again, if you're faithful, if you're available, if you take initiative, if you're teachable, and if you have humility. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll sing a song in response. Jesus, I thank you for your clear vision of leadership in the New Testament. 
I thank you for your clear vision of leadership in the Old Testament. And I thank you for Paul's wise counsel to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. Lord, will you raise up faithful men and women who can teach others to do likewise, that the gospel will go forward for your glory and for the good of the people.